Well, uh, glad that you're joined with us this morning. Um, it is October. It's sort of fall. <laughs> it's, uh, it's fall in the mornings anyway. Um, you know, clear skies. It's, man, it's getting nice around here. I, uh, I'm glad you're with us today, too. We're wrapping up our, our series called Speaking Oki, where we've looked the past uh, few weeks at some phrases from my motherland and, and some uh, hidden meanings behind them and how we can uh, kind of take some of those meanings and apply biblical principles to those. And before we jump into the last one today, I wanted just to give you your last little bits of, uh, you know, Oklahoma life that I can share with you in, in this series. And, uh, one of them is, has been one of the, gosh, I don't, I don't want to say there's good and bad things about living out here, but, you know, there's good and bad things about living everywhere you go. And one of them in particular is your choices of beverages out here. Uh, in particular, the fact that when you order a glass of tea, it, it makes you make this face right here when you, this is when you get unsweet tea, <laughs> you know. I saw a video that, that I wanted to share and it said the proper way to drink unsweetened tea, don't. Um, and then the video shows somebody just dumping it down the sink, you know, it's Another one uh, said you, you go to a restaurant and say, uh, I'd, I'd like sweet tea. And they say, well, I'll bring you tea and some sugar. Is that okay? And the reply is, sure, can I pay in Monopoly money? You know, bring me fake tea, I'll pay in fake money. So. I also wanted to share one more good oaky slash southern word with you. Um, this is one of my favorite words. I hear some people in my family use this word. Used to could. Used to could. Okay, a lot of you are shaking your heads. You know where I'm going with this. Because it's got cousins, used to couldn't, and might could. Uh, but to use this in context, you might ask somebody, do you know how to dance? Well, I used to could. And if I stretch my legs out, I might could again. That's used to could. I, I want to just give you one more good southern word uh, because, you know, they're just so fun to share. And that way, if you ever make your way back to Oklahoma by accident, you're not going to feel too lost, Okay. We have been looking at some phrases, some uh, just, just terms of phrase that get used across the country. I, I said this a few weeks ago, that every part of the country has its own dialect, has its own, almost its own version of Americanese, American English. And uh, some of these phrases you've heard, some of these phrases aren't just native to the South or Oklahoma or the Midwest. Some of these go coast to coast, but they're, they're fun anyway. Today we're going to look at this phrase right here, and it's the phrase, that dog won't hunt. Now, a lot of you know this phrase, right? A little background on this phrase. Um, this comes, obviously, from the idea of a hunting dog. Uh, before we moved out here, I did a lot of waterfowl hunting, duck hunting, goose hunting, etc. And one of the, the best tools you can have in waterfowl hunting is a good, trusty dog because you're shooting them over water. And uh, often, you know, we're, we're wearing chest waders, and, you know, we can... We can go out and get the birds if the water's shallow enough, but we hunted on a lake sometimes where it got deep pretty fast, or um, you know, it's, it's a muddy bottom and it's hard to walk through, so you want a good trusty dog. But occasionally you get a dog that simply won't hunt. They're kind of worthless. Uh, I had a, a, a lab one time, and, and she eventually became a good hunting dog, but it took a long time. I was training with her one day. We went out to a, a practice pond, and we, have, we, we call them bumpers. It's like those foam rubber um, duck training uh, Toy, yeah, it's sort of like a decoy. Um, but I'd throw it out for her in the water. She would go to the edge and then just stand there. I'm like, I got you for a reason. You're a lab. You're a big, powerful dog. 
okay? You can swim. You've got an extra layer in your skin that protects you from the icy cold water. Like, you're made for this. But she would just sit there and wait and watch. And she would see the duck slowly in the wind pushing across the pond. So she would walk all the way around and just sit there and wait. (laughs) Now, you know the old adage, work smarter, not harder, right? She was, except it took about 15 minutes to make one retrieve. And that worked on a small pond. It wouldn't have worked out on the lake where we were hunting on an island or something of that nature. Uh, but that's, that's the phrase, this dog won't hunt. We, we use this phrase to kind of describe somebody's sense of logic or sense of, of reasoning that just doesn't work out. That's where that phrase kind of comes up. You try to explain something to me and I know it's not going to work out, but you, you're convinced and you're, you're reasoning and logic, using logic on your way through this. And I'm just like, man, that dog won't hunt. You can try, but that, that dog won't hunt. That's kind of where this phrase comes about here. And we see this in relation to the Bible. What we see is a, a world, a society that's trying to reason and give us logic to go a certain way, think a certain way, act a certain way, direct our lives a certain way. And Jesus is like, man, that dog won't hunt. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 today, and we're just going to camp out there and, and look at a, a story. And as you're getting there, I'll kind of set this up just a little bit. Matthew 16 takes place in a town called Caesarea Philippi. This is a, an image of Caesarea Philippi uh, from a few years ago. And you can see it, it's, it's notable. This is up in the northern part of Israel, notable for this huge rock formation, um, I don't know if you can see, there's kind of a cave in the middle, there's a cutout just to the right of the cave, and there's actually people uh, standing in front of that cutout, so you can kind of tell how, how tall this is. Uh, but Caesarea Philippi had a very large pagan presence, and that cave in the middle was actually used as, a, as, as like a sacrificing grounds to the pagan god Pan. And this is the horrific part of the story, because what parents would do is they would take their newborn children and sacrifice them to this pagan god Pan by throwing these newborn infants into the cave and leaving them. And because of the screams that came out and the cries that came out from these infants, this cave became known as the gate to hell. That's important. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. The gates of hell. Because it's, it's here in, in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus gathers his disciples and he has a very important conversation and he asks him two questions. First question he asks him is still relevant to us today. It's this, who do people say Jesus is? Okay, Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, this is still a topic for us today. We might sit and think, well... Yeah, you know, people today, I mean, who is Jesus, right? There's a lot of people who doubt that Jesus is who he said he was. Now, here's one thing about Jesus is historians and scholars, I'm not talking about people with a Facebook or a Twitter account, historians and scholars, whether they're Christian or not, almost across the board, there's a consensus belief that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person. He really lived, he really died. Like, that's not really disputable in the academic community. Jesus is just as real of a historical figure as George Washington or Julius Caesar or Napoleon. Like, like he's a real person that really did things on this earth. But that's sometimes where the agreement stops. See, as Christians, we believe more about Jesus. Non-Christians don't necessarily believe this. They might say, well, 
He was a prophet, or he was a teacher, or he was a good moral person. He did good things. He helped people. That's not a bad person to be, but that's not who we believe Jesus is. That's not who we believe Jesus was. But even in that day and time, there was disagreement on who Jesus was. Now, understand something here. They didn't have the New Testament to look back on. They were living it out, okay? The New Testament hadn't been written yet. It was still going to be 20, 25 years before the first even letter was written, and the Gospels were still about four or five decades away. But here's what the disciples replied to Jesus with. They said, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others still Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, again, those aren't bad people to be, okay? But this, this is the issue, and this is where we, we get today. Who do people say Jesus is? Well, Jesus was a good person. Okay, it's not a bad start, but let's not stop with that. So Jesus makes it a little bit more personal, and he asks them another question. Okay, that's who people say I am. Who do you say I am? And he says this in verse 15. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, here's where we start as Christians to put it together. Because Peter... Of course, it's Peter, jumps up and answers the question. Here's what Peter says in verse 16. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Key phrase there at the very end. See, here's the thing about Peter. I said, of course, it's Peter. It's always Peter. Peter was like that kid that we all had in one of our classes at school who always had an answer to the question, whether it was right or wrong. And often they were the first one with their hands up. Like, especially when you go to Bible college, okay, it's a little different at Bible college because everybody wants to impress everybody else because everybody's there studying the Bible, but somebody has to know it a little bit more than everybody else, and especially incoming freshmen. Okay, that's, that's just the knock. Freshman classes are tough at Bible college because you really want to show that you know Jesus better than anybody else does. And that's kind of where Peter's coming from here. And he gets the answer right. Okay, he gets the answer right. But here's the thing. Jesus points out, you didn't learn this from anybody else. You learned this from God. See, Peter and the disciples were just average, ordinary people. They didn't go to Bible college. They, had, they didn't have seminary degrees. In fact, it says in Acts chapter 4, that, that, that this, is, this stands out to me, they were called ordinary unschooled men. Look, look at this verse. This is from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, like the elite of the, the academic elite. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So here's the thing about Peter... Peter learned the truth about Jesus by following Jesus. Okay, you know this. You can learn things by reading a book. You can learn things by listening to a lecture. You can learn things by watching an instructional video on YouTube, okay? You, you can do these, right? But most of us, we learn by observing and doing. I, I, I love to read. I love to study. But I am a, 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 a visual learner. I see things done, and I, and I do them. Uh, I, I watched my dad tile a floor one time, and that's how I learned how to do it. Uh, in fact, when we bought our first house, uh, after we got married about 11 years ago, I, we had two bathrooms, and I tiled uh, one of our bathroom floors. And it was a very small bathroom. Well, I didn't do a very good job. I messed it up. 
But I noticed what I did. I noticed what I did wrong. And then a few weeks later, we tiled our kitchen floor, and I had my dad and my father-in-law helping me, but it was perfect. Then a few years later, I, I tiled, completely tiled our master bathroom and did it right. Why? Because I'd watched my father, my father-in-law do it. I had tried it and messed up and saw where I messed up, and I moved on. We all do this, right? With whatever it is that we like to do, that we're good at doing, we watch others, we learn from others, and we do it by practice. Folks, you can only learn the truth about Jesus by following Jesus. And here's the response that Jesus gives to Peter for that answer. Verse 18, he says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. Remember where they were just a moment ago? A lot of scholars believe they were actually on top of that rock formation with the gates of hell down below them, having this conversation. Jesus never missed an opportunity to use visual illustrations. Why? Because he knows he's got disciples like Peter who learn by watching, by seeing. And I don't have a doubt that, that they're hearing cries from infants in this horrible cave. And Jesus is going, even that won't overcome my church. Man, that's powerful. You could walk away from the sermon right here and be done and think, okay, that's cool. But Peter didn't, because he's Peter. He didn't know when to stop. In fact, Peter, uh, he, Peter was so eager to prove that he knew what, what was right and wrong that he just couldn't keep his foot out of his mouth. And, and I, you know, what we, what we say a few weeks ago, bless his heart. Because Peter's us, man. <laughs> we're such, we are so much like him. And, and, and here's the thing, folks. If we're not careful, we can allow our truth that we know to get us off track. And that's what Peter does here. Jump down a couple verses. Verse 21, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Okay, he's, he's preaching that. They just had this great moment, and now he's saying, I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be beaten and killed. I'll come back, don't worry, but it's going to be bad, okay, for a stretch. And look at verse 22. Peter took him aside. Peter, like some translations say, Peter actually grabbed him by the arm and pulled him to the side. You imagine? Like, how many of you were ever in, like, a university class, and you pulled your professor by the, like, someone with a doctor and go, listen, I don't think you understand this topic as well as you think you do. Usually it was that one raising their hand the first day of school going, I know these answers, right? He's taking the creator of the universe to the side and saying, Jesus, listen to me, buddy. This isn't going to happen, and I'm going to make sure it's not ever going to happen. You can trust me. I got your back. <laughs> I love this because Jesus' response is not very nice. Verse 23 he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, let's give Peter a little bit of credit here. Jesus, I mean, Peter is one of the closest people to Jesus, okay? Probably one of the two or three closest friends and brothers that Jesus has. 
So when he says, hey, some bad things are going to happen to me, you can put yourself in his shoes. You're like, no, Jesus, no, 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 we're not going to let that happen. He doesn't understand the whole picture. Again, he doesn't have a New Testament to read. Okay, he doesn't know how this is going to go yet. Peter makes a very human response that we might make as well, too. He pointed out his truth to Jesus, the truth he wanted to hear, the truth he wanted to believe. And Jesus calls a spade a spade. Jesus is telling Peter, listen, dude, that dog won't hunt, okay? I know you think you've got the best intentions in mind, but that's not how it's going to work out. He he's, says, get behind me, Satan. I, he's not like literally calling Peter Satan, okay? Like he knows this is Peter, this isn't the devil. But what he knows is that Satan is just, just barely twisting Peter enough to distort his version of the truth. Just barely. It's not enough that it's noticeable to anybody other than Jesus. And folks, this is where it's dangerous for us too. Because our version of the truth can get just barely twisted. We've got a, a toaster that you, the, the, the knob for the setting is very hard to see. It's like it's just very subtle. And Titus likes to turn it all the way around. <laughs> One of his hobbies. So if you don't pay attention, that knob, you get black toast instead of, you know, slightly toasted toast. If that's your thing, that's the perfect toaster for you. And have Titus come over. He'll set you up. Just twisting it a little is all it takes. But here's the thing, folks. When Satan does that, when he twists that knob just a little bit, not only does it distort your version of the truth, it distorts your faith as well. Because suddenly now we want to rush out and play defense. We want to rush out and make sure nothing happens to Jesus or the church. Peter, in this moment, his version of the truth became a stumbling block. And Jesus steps in here, and he's not very nice to Peter. I think he's kind. There's kind of a difference there. I think you know what I'm going there with. Like, you can be kind without necessarily being nice. Like, he's not gushing over, going, oh, Peter, you little, you little scamp. He's not saying that. Come over here and sit down, and we'll explain it to you. No, I mean, he's pretty firm. Parents, you understand this, okay? We get this. I'm firm with my kids because I love them, because I want them to see the truth in the world and the truth in Jesus, and I want them to know the difference between the two. And here's the thing, folks. We need to be willing to stand on the truth of Scripture and take Scripture to our world, but we need to remember that Jesus doesn't need us to be his offense and defense. He's Jesus. He's God. He's, he's got that under control pretty well. And Peter loses that in this moment. What Peter should have learned is a lesson we need to learn that occasionally we need to get out of God's way. We need to step back and get behind him like Jesus told him to. Verse 24, Jesus said to the disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And we talked about this last week a little bit, about letting God have control, about letting go of, of our control, letting go of, of the way we think that things should go. These, these kind of go hand in hand here. See, what we want often in our world is we want instant gratification. We're a microwave society, and in fact, not only are we a microwave society, We've gotten so spoiled that when we were uh, go back to Oklahoma, if we stay with, with my mom, I get annoyed that her microwave doesn't have express buttons. I actually have to punch in one zero zero start if I want a minute instead of just punching the number one. 
Like, how much instant gratification do you need? Okay? I saw a few years ago on a package of Pop-Tarts. Okay? Pop-Tarts. You know Pop-Tarts? You put them in the toaster, you push them down, in a minute you've got a hot little tart, right? They come in a foil package. It says clearly on the package, do not microwave Pop-Tarts in the package. I'm like, how much of a hurry do you have to be in to microwave a Pop-Tart in the first place? It takes a minute in the toaster. That's the kind of society we've gotten ourselves into. Instant gratification. But to follow Jesus, you have to accept delayed gratification. It's not going to come immediately. And that's what he tells us when he says, take up your cross and follow me. Again, we talked about this last week. You cannot follow Jesus from the driver's seat. It's impossible. Okay? Okay? But that's not what a lot of narratives tell us. And folks, sometimes these narratives even come from the church. You go down to any store that sells books, okay, whether that's like even like Walmart or Fred Meyer, or you go on Amazon, if you look up Christian bestsellers, you're going to see a lot of flowery, fluffy books out there that tell you how to live your best life, that tell you that it's about you. In fact, one of the most impactful books written was The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, and his first line of the book is, it's not all about you. He makes it very clear. Folks, Jesus' words to us are not about living our best life now. They're about living a life in the kingdom that is to come. And so while, while some authors and pastors are going to preach and tell you to go live your best life, Jesus is going to say something more like this. He's going to tell you to not run from suffering, but embrace it. That's what we want to hear from Jesus, right? No, suffering's coming, man. Celebrate it. Rejoice. That's what Paul says. Rejoice in your sufferings. You can retranslate this little phrase right here to take up your cross and follow me. See, following Jesus, it's about, again, delayed gratification. And if there's ever been a symbol of delayed gratification, it's that cross that's right back there. Now, we put these on our walls. We wear them as, as jewelry. We display them. But this was a sign of suffering and pain and agony. This was a political statement in, for the Romans. If there was a threat to them, they nailed them on a cross. And yet Jesus, as he's telling Peter, telling his disciples, I'm going to go put that on. And it's going to be for you. And you might not understand it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Hebrews chapter 12, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. Instant gratification means we go seek self-help. Jesus demands self-sacrifice. He demands that we submit and surrender to him. And folks, that, that dog will hunt. That dog will hunt. Here's how he wraps up this, this conversation in verse 26. He says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? You want to know a few hard truths about Jesus? If you're taking notes, write these down. Here's the first one. Jesus is the Christ. 
He is the son of the living God. He is the Messiah. He is our savior. And you need to understand this, folks. If you think you've got a grip on your own life without Jesus, you're, you're dead wrong. Jesus is either Lord of everything or he isn't Lord of anything. It's all or none. Don't sit on the fence. He says in Revelation plainly that he's going to spit out those who come from lukewarm waters. He wants you to be hot or cold. So get on board. He is the Lord of everything. And the only way you can make him Lord of your life and Lord of everything in your life is through surrender, through submission, through accepting him as your Savior and through surrendering to him in baptism. That's it. That's the only way you make him the Lord of your life. Here's the second truth about Jesus. He is the only way to get to heaven. You cannot get there on your own. You can't get there through any pagan gods out there. And folks, there are horrific pagan gods in Jesus' day and time. We still have them today. They're a little more subtle. They look like people. They look like ideas. They look like man-made institutions. Be careful that you're worshiping God and God alone and not something that is false. John chapter 14, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he was having one final conversation with his disciples. And he's telling them that he's going to go away for just a bit, but then he's going to come back. And in the middle of this conversation, uh, one of his disciples, Thomas, says this, John 14 verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Nothing in this world can save you. No person, no created thing, nothing. Only Jesus. And here's the third reality, the third truth you need to know. Jesus is holy. He's holy. We talked about the word holy, and you may question and wonder exactly what that word means because we say it at church a lot. Holy means set apart. One of my Bible college professors always liked to use the phrase holy other. In other words, he's, he's up here. He's set apart. He's without sin. Folks, we aren't holy, but he calls us to be holy, meaning he calls us to strive to be like him. What does that mean? It means that we surrender and we submit everything that we think we know about the truth of our world, that we have crafted and created on our own, and we look into his word. We fall on the words of Jesus. We fall on, on the promises of God, on the fact that, yes, he went to that cross, and he died on that cross. And then two days later, he walked out of a tomb and he defeated death and hell and the grave once and for all so that we can have the promise of eternity with him. That dog will hunt. That dog will hunt. We're going to wrap this sermon up a little bit different this morning. But as you think about that idea of holiness, you think about that idea of what can we do to grab on I want to encourage you just to listen to the words that they're going to sing. These are older songs. You probably know them. If you know them, join us as we close this out.